Welcome to Liturgy and Lawning, an eight-week limited series podcast about the church and the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll begin each episode with a question and invite each of our participants to introduce themselves and answer the question in turn. We'll be using a process of mutual invitation for this. So Jason, I'll ask you the question first. And once you've introduced yourself and spoken to that question, you can ask whoever you like to speak next. Our question for today is, what's something you thought you knew that you were later found out you were wrong about, Jason? (laughs) About everything? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, pretty much everything. Now, I... You know, I think the thing that I um, thought of when I first read this question, it was like the first thing I thought of was the idea that <clears throat> you kind of pit, you pit two things as kind of either, either or. It's like, oh, you know, it has to be this thing or that thing. And I've learned more that a lot of times it's, it's both. And, um, you know, I think even, you know, our, our conversation is around obviously race and everything that's going on this week and, and um and racism and you know the first the first time that i would say like when i was probably in college i read a book for the first time to really understand um the black man or the i guess i guess it was written by a black man so it was his experience of living in the u.s and and i never read anything like that before and um he was an evangelical author and I remember him just he basically he explained his experience, but what I took from it was that, I mean, cause there's kind of this evangelical mindset that the, the solution to all our problems is just to get everybody saved and then their hearts will change and everything will be fine. And, and uh, it was kind of this book that helped me understand that, no, there has to be systemic, you, you, you have to address the soul and you have to address the system. It's not a both and. So, I mean, that's, that's what I thought of right off the bat. Um, Carl, what about you? Well, Jason, I was just thinking about um, a friend in seminary who is African-American. And, and one day he and I were having this conversation. And he said, you know, I think the way that we use spirituals during our family Eucharist um, is a problem because we only use uh, black music when we're with children um, as if black music was only appropriate for children. And he said, I find it infantilizing. And, and I got all kept up about that. And I went to the leader of the group and I said to her, hey, I think this is a problem. You know, I was talking to my friend and he says it's infantilizing. We should find different music. And then a week later, I went to the family Eucharist, and again, we were using spirituals. So, like, I spent the entire Eucharist being really upset, and then I went up to the leader afterwards, and I said, what's going on? I thought we had talked about this, and we were going to use different music. And she said, well, right, but I went in, and I talked to our friend, the original person complaining, and we had a really good conversation about it, and he said it was okay, and so we used it. And, and I think the thing I learned from that, the thing I was wrong about, was this idea that it was my responsibility to fix, you know, that I had to just go in and impose like what I thought was right. And the thing that the leader was right about and and my friend was right about was dialogue. You know, like I, I think the thing I learned was when somebody complains about an injustice, the thing should not be to be like, well, I will go fix that injustice, but to say, let's bring together the different people so that they could actually have a conversation about it. 
Um, Jane, your turn. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I definitely have learned those kinds of being wrong to my own desire to fix or make right. Um, but the example that I thought of when I heard the question was, like, this is kind of embarrassing on some level, is I remember taking this anti-oppression class when I was in seminary. We were doing a lot of self-reflection, um, anti-racism work, um, justice work, um, thinking about all the ways that our own social location uh, is problematic and also just part of our own story. How do we use our own stories? And one of the pieces was about um, like our socioeconomic status and we were supposed to tell our own story about that. And I had grown up thinking I was kind of middle class. Like I remember my parents telling us we couldn't afford certain things and um, that you know, there, there were lots of ways where I was just told that like my experience was normal. And as I began listening to other people's stories, I realized just how different I had grown up from many of the people that I was around. And I just had never been in a place where we were really talking that honestly about money. I think I had grown up with an understanding that we weren't actually supposed to talk to people about how much money they have or how they think about money. Um, and I remember actually calling my dad from Boston and saying like, can I ask you some questions? And realizing like my childhood understanding of my own social location was completely skewed. Mm -hmm. And I had to start being a lot more honest about privilege and about the privilege I had been brought up in. And it was a really awkward, like humbling thing because I didn't want to admit to it. I wanted to pretend that I was just like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I had to come to terms with that. Um, and I think it set me on a journey to keep thinking about my own privilege and how I, how I engage with the world around me and what, what my responsibility is around that. So what about you, Di? Uh, first, those are some really thoughtful responses and I am really grateful for them. Thank you. Um, it's a, I was worried when I, so in full disclosure, that's a question that is often asked by journalists Kai Rizdahl and Molly Wood. Um, so it's not originally my question, um, but I was a little worried when I put it out there because um, it was not intended to be a gotcha question. And I'm so grateful for how wholeheartedly the three of you entered into it. Um, my answer, I have a lot of answers. My first answer is what Jason's was, everything. Everything, just everything. <laughs> um, the answer that has felt so important to me lately is that I used to think that other people had to deem you qualified and give you a job for you to be able to do specific work. Hmm. And particularly like hip deep in capitalism, um, job titles and employment titles are how we so often think about legitimate work. Um, but I don't think that anymore. I, it is tremendously freeing and a gift to think about the good work that needs to be done being um, a response to noticed need, you know, and figuring out what's ours to do rather than what someone else appoints us in charge of. Um, so the big thing I was wrong about is you don't have to wait. Um, and, and it really, I think matters a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's important to me, the whole, the, 
the topic is important to me um, because something else I was wrong about is um, we're talking about discipleship and mission this week. And I grew up in really conservative churches and I thought that both discipleship and mission were one size fits all. There was a particular way all Christians maybe sorted by gender, but generally all Christians were supposed to be. Um, and when we talked about discipleship, it was sort of a one-on-one apprenticeship of, of morality or virtue. Um, and, but those particular tasks were the ones for everyone to do. Um, and mission was generally thought in terms of conversion. Um, there might be like a building project, but ultimately if we did good things, it was so that hmm. other people would accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and not as an act of love in, in and of itself. Um, and I understand both of those things really differently now. When I think of discipleship, I think of deliberately choosing who we learn from because we learn who we learn from shapes the work we do. Um, and there's a lot of different work to be done. Um, and rather than trying to be good and particularly rather than trying to be seen as good, um, I think we need to get more comfortable with being publicly wrong and and instead of sinking into shame and hiding when that happens, being being correctable. Um, and those things are always true. But this week, um, I think it's really important to say that one of the reasons that we're talking about race and racism this week is that it is the first week of June in 2020. Um, and we are in the midst of intense national pain and conflict over... Specifically this time, the police killing of a black man named George Floyd, um, but also um, systemic persecution and aggression of black people. And right now, who we learn from, who we listen to, and how willing we are to accept our wrongness uh, feels really vital. Um, So... So those are things I'm thinking about this week and how I'm thinking about discipleship and mission. Uh, and it makes me wonder for the three of you, who you've learned from and how that's made a difference in how you serve God and neighbor. Um, anybody can jump in. And I'll add, okay, maybe not everybody can jump in because I'm going to add, um, I didn't have my first black teacher until seminary. And so I'm curious when you think about who you're listening and learning from and how that shapes your formation. Um, I'm also curious to hear when you started hearing different, when you started hearing different voices, um, when you started hearing different perspectives. Well, that's, that's an interesting direction for it because I, I wasn't previously thinking in terms of like childhood and learning in childhood. But I, when I went, was entering sixth grade, um, I was sent to an inner city Milwaukee school for a German immersion program. So there were um, me and maybe about, I don't know, 10 other white kids in a, and we were the only ones <laughs> in this inner city middle school. Now, our program itself, we were all in this German immersion program. Um, so 
that class is about half and half, half white kids and, and half African-American kids. Um, but beyond that, we, we were the, the one um, white group in the school. Um, but our teacher, Frau Berkeley, was after African-American, and she's the one who took us to Germany on this class trip. <laughs> and she was the one who had like the most brilliant form of um, jiu-jitsu that I've ever experienced because Germany had changed its drinking laws the week before we showed up. Like they had their first drinking law, so none of us could drink. You know, all these little middle schoolers, we thought we were going to get wasted on schnapps. And, um, and Frau Berkeley um, said, well, okay, all of you want to drink? I'll, I will throw a drinking party for you our last night here. So she took us to this bar and she ordered like the, the most dank, bitter, like, dark <laughs> beer one could ever, you know, uh, taste for our table. So we all took like one step and we were done. And ever since then, I've been like, Frau Berkeley, you knew how to manage people, right? (laughs) (laughs) So so I learned from her. There's, there's many different avenues I could take with this. I mean, I think for the most part, who I've learned from has been like white men. I mean, that's just pretty much the way it's been because I think for the most part, you know, like my specialization in ancient biblical history and stuff like that. It's not that there's not black men who are interested in it. It's just, I just imagine that, that, that the white, there's just, you know, that, that system of racism, you know, where it's like the only people who got hired were white men. And, and, and there was the only people who got into certain, you know, schools were people of privilege. So I, I don't really know. And I, I mean, I, I don't really know exactly how they got into that place. My, that's my suspicion. And I mean, I, mean, I think just learning from what's going, I, I learned, you know, I mean, the thing that I have been engaged in is a becoming beloved community um, committee. Um, some of the work that we've been doing is really learning and understanding how embedded racism is structural racism is you know like from day one of our country so it's like um it's just learning how you know how deep it really goes but i mean for the most part white men have been teaching me i mean at the same time i mean i also grew up in a very different type of church tradition you know where it's it was charismatic and a charismatic context is much more desegregated um i grew up going it wasn't 50 50 but it was pretty close um a lot of african americans and a lot of white people worshiping together and um i think i left that tradition because i couldn't stand the the theology anymore but it had nothing to do with i mean but i mean i what i appreciate is the worship and what i was exposed to and african-american there were plenty of african-american um uh, musicians and the music was highly inspired by African-Americans. But I mean, I don't know. So, I mean, it's just a sense of, I had a little bit of both. Um, but I think as far as like who I've learned from has been pretty much white men. And so now it's like, what I'm trying to do is change that is, is start to, and that's not easy because I mean, honestly, I mean, like I'm thinking like even, I'm preaching this week, you know, this Sunday. And like my first thought, because it's like Trinity Sunday, I'm thinking like, 
um, Jurgen Moltmann, you know, I'm like, that's a white man. Like, why am I, why do I want to go to that guy? You know, it's like, I've got to go to the voice of somebody else. And particularly, particularly, you know, I'm thinking of, um, Austin Channing Brown, like, you know, a black woman who, and so, yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, such a good question. I, I mean, I think as we said, there's so many different directions to go with it. The, when I was thinking about like childhood teachers, I went to an all Catholic, I went to Roman Catholic white, mostly white school for elementary school. And so I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't have any memory of having a lot of people of color or others teaching me at that time. But then in seventh grade, I went to a, a public um, high school, Magnet High School in Cincinnati that drew from all over the city. And for the first time, I was really thrown into this incredibly diverse atmosphere, both in terms of teachers and um, student body and, and just people from every neighborhood and community all over Cincinnati. And it was a real education. Um, everything from just like I grew up, you know, respecting teachers. And like, if a teacher said, sit down, you sat down. And I like saw for the first time that people didn't always listen to the teachers. And it was a very weird like thing to be like, well, why wouldn't someone listen to the authority um, in the room um, and trying to process that. And I think back and I can think of specific teachers um, and people who at each time were opening not just my mind, but my heart, um, helping me understand people's realities. But the example I was thinking of like someone who really helped shape me in terms of mission and ministry um, and I'm really sad that I wasn't on the week that Emmanuel Tashimi was with you um, on the podcast. And I don't know, maybe he told some of this story, but um, I, I'll just tell it from my perspective is that there was this day that he knocked on the door of the church where I was working in Dayton. And he, um, I saw a black man standing there and to be totally and completely transparent, like there, there is that moment of fear that crosses through your mind. Like, should I'm alone in the church? Should I open the door right now? Mm -hmm. um, but I felt really compelled and he and a friend came in and we began to talk and he said, you know, I'm Episcopalian. Can this be our church? And I was like, sure. And he started coming to church and he started bringing people with him and at each kind of moment, he would come to me and we would sit and talk. And there was this moment where he said, Pastor, you know that in Africa, the pastors go and meet people in their homes. They knock on people's doors. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I know. I'm kind of scared to knock on strangers' doors, like especially in this neighborhood in West Dayton. Like, I'm not sure that like, it, should I go just knock on people's doors? And he said, I'll go with you. Hmm. And he took me and he took me to street corners where groups of men were just chatting about their lives. He took me into the homes of immigrants um, from Rwanda and Burundi and um, helped translate so that I could know their stories um, and, and understand the, the pain that they were going through. Um, to birthday parties and weddings and all kinds of things. And there was this moment where I realized he taught me more about mission and ministry and discipleship. Like he discipled me into um, what it meant to be called. And from that, we began to, he started this prayer fellowship. He said, can we, can we start praying? We miss singing songs in our own language. And that turned into him developing a new community of faith. Um, 
that we called the African Prayer Fellowship. And I think that launched me into this question of like, what do communities of faith look like that meet the context and the language and the specific needs of the people who are in them, instead of asking them to meet our mostly often in our churches, white ways of gathering and praying and singing. And, um, and I think that for me was one of the like more transformative moments in my life where I learned how to listen, how to go when I'm scared, how to take risks, mm -hmm. um, and mostly just how to build with people the things in the communities that they long to be part of. So that's my answer about my teacher today. There's lots of other <laughs> teachers, but. Dai, would it be okay if I, if I named something else as a teacher too? Of course. Uh, and I know you and I have had this conversation, and so I, I know that I uh, should use my words carefully and we'll probably get it wrong, so please feel free to push back. But I really do feel that shame is a great teacher. And, I, and when I say that, I think people who have been made to feel ashamed just because of their gender or their race, really there's a strong reaction there, right? So maybe I should just say, as a white man, shame is a great teacher. Um, and the, I was thinking about this just today because we're, we're, I live in Columbus and I, I and my family were at the protests on Saturday and things are getting really pretty rough and scary. And we had our bikes, but my, my wife and daughter had come after I had already been there. So their bikes were parked somewhere else. So we were just going to move their bikes to a, to a place where we could get to them easier if things went down badly. But we were going through the crowd, pushing the bikes, intending to go back immediately to the front lines. But we were like, come on. You know, I was like, saying to them, come on, come on. And I was wearing my collar and I was wearing my uh, baseball cat with the Episcopal shield. And I locked eyes with a lot of the other protesters. And I could just see on his face that he thought I was running away. And I felt, you know, I felt ashamed of that. I would, you know, I wanted to explain, no, we're going to go back. But I was like, no, I'm glad he's making me feel ashamed because the truth is I do want to run away. And, and that look on his face, more than anything, is going to make me want to go back um, just because I don't want to be ashamed. But I think for me again and again and again in my life, um, becoming comfortable with that feeling of being a child again who continually get things wrong, somebody's always telling them that they're getting things wrong, has been really important because I, I don't see how I can help in this work without getting things wrong. And if I um, am not comfortable with that feeling of shame, which will come whether I want it to or not, uh, I'm going to back off and hide. So I, I, I'll just put it out there that I think shame is, for me at least, been an excellent teacher and continues to be. I think that's so important. And the way I have heard it framed that's a little bit different, and I don't know how you'll feel about this, um, is that I have heard sometimes people distinguish between shame and guilt, with shame being um, a feeling that my intrinsic self is bad, and guilt being I have done something wrong. Um, and to distinguish between those two is helpful for me. That language may not be helpful for you, but to me, I think if a human being feels that they are intrinsically bad, that is generally not helpful. Um, but the feeling that I am doing something wrong and need to rectify that is absolutely useful in how we grow. And in fact, um, one of the things that I wanted us to talk about was 
how we can use our liturgy to accept error as a necessary stage in transformation. And to me, a huge part of that um, is how we use um, lament and how we use confession to really focus in on, actually, this is our responsibility and we have colossally messed up, I'll say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah. To me, like... um, we have also we have also messed up until we're in the, partly in that we are waiting until this week to to do it. But our little Compline consortium on Facebook, um, we will for the foreseeable future be starting Compline with either the Great Litur- Litany or an extended confession because that's where we are right now, and it's important that we do that. And actually, every one of our leaders in this group is white, um, and we absolutely need to be publicly repenting. Um, and not in a showy, like, fireworks of ashes sort of way. But, um, but I, I agree with you, Carl. I, I don't use the word shame the same way that you use it. Um, but we need to feel bad about ourselves sometimes. Yeah. Um, I think and I think about conscience, right? It's like when our child comes to us and is clearly upset and doesn't know how to process the feeling that they have hurt someone or they've done something wrong, and that the first instinct is to cover it up, and then realizing that covering it up actually just makes you feel worse, and helping our children figure out how to like navigate through that, that actually the speaking it out loud, asking for forgiveness, is the way in which you get that feeling that's inside of you, by whatever name you call it. And, and not like, just asking for, for, I'm sorry. No, just like into the world in some capacity, yeah. And not just asking for forgiveness, but making restitution. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, I will just mention as a resource, I was um, talking with a couple of clergy colleagues the other day who are saying like, we need prayers. We need resources for this. Where do we find them? Um, I have one colleague who actually ended up just writing her own and sending it to me, but um, but they're, the Standing Committee on Liturgy and Music wrote some, and you can find it on their website, um, wrote some litanies and confessions um, around racial injustice. And so I think that there might be some great resources there. If you already know about them, it looks like you do, Dive, but maybe for other people who might be listening and looking for those tools. Um, there's a lot of other places out there that have this, but if you Google, but. Um, that's one Episcopal resource. Thank you. How, because you lead worship and you lead these liturgies, um, are there ways that you have used these public communal sources in the past that you've found helpful? Well, we, we used one from Minnesota on Sunday and, um, I mean, we adapted it for Columbus, but um, people found it incredibly helpful. I think it's just putting into words what was in their hearts, what they were feeling, and to hear your heart spoken aloud in liturgy by somebody else helps you know that you are not alone. Um, So I think just in that, it was a given. Um, I also feel though, I went on on Sunday to a to a prayer march, kind of.
kind of thing. I'm can't, I'm not sure exactly what it was called on the Near East side, and it was definitely it was the black preachers who were leading it and talking, and um, that was incredibly powerful. And that was not necessarily a voice of lament, but it was bringing the power of scripture and liturgy into the moment of protest in a way that is not happening right now downtown. Um, but it was also very clear that they actually had a plan. They, they know what needs to happen. And so part of it was I could come away from it and be like, well, I've been chanting the same things over and over again downtown and standing up to police, which is all good. Like it needs to happen. It is kind of the driver of change. But once that moment is passed to know that um, these, these Christians have put all of their thought and their prayer and their work of building community into actually knowing what the solution is and pushing it forward, that was deeply reassuring. <laughs> um, so I don't know if that's liturgical and, or about lament, but it is to say the, our life of prayer and our life of action are so deeply and intricately connected, not only when we're out chanting in the streets, but also when we're meeting in rooms and planning and, and creating policies and everything else. I just want to affirm, like, I think that Carl's right, that some of it is about putting into words for people emotions and feelings that are hard to process. And that that is, for me at least, the yeah. public purpose of having those kinds of liturgical, you know, litanies and laments and confessions. Um, and that that's sort of the work of people of faith is to, like, bring those feelings to God and that there's also a work as just a human being to take those into the public square and that the places where those two things intersect can be incredibly powerful. So yesterday when I was down at the courthouse for this sort of prayer rally thing too, I don't know, there was like prayer, but also, you know, commands being asked. I'm not sure how to define it either, but um, there was a moment after many speakers and people standing and speaking their stories um, who I just want to mention, I think was one of the things I find to be immensely powerful, very powerful about the Black Lives Matter movement is that women, especially young Black women, seem to be really leading the charge and seeing these young Black women, like kind of telling us how we can engage, um, I found to be really powerful. But there was a moment where they started a woman's stood up to the mic and started singing lift every voice and sing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just immediately got so teary and I heard people starting to sing. There was some little part of me that was like, we really shouldn't be singing, but, um, <laughs> but just even listening to her, I just started humming at a certain point just to be like, I'm not going to try to spread more germs, but I want to hear her voice singing this. Um, and realizing one, how much I missed music and music that like, reverberates through a crowd like that um but that in and of itself that was the same kind of i think liturgical um action and prayer combined you know jane when you say that and when i think about what carl said earlier about using um black gospel music only for the children um one of the I'm bringing those together. Hang with me for a minute. Um, one of the things that it makes me think of is that not only do we need to use these sources, but 
we have to think about how we're using them. And it was used so beautifully where you were, Jane, and it was used well when there was conversation, Carl. And I think of those things because um, the first Episcopal parish that I worshiped in used to sing Lift Every Voice fairly often. Like that's where I learned it. Um, Had no idea that it was a, that it, that it came out of the black tradition. Um, and, you know, I have to tell you, when you hear the line about marching through the blood of the slaughtered, it's radically different that is. <laughs> when it comes from a white perspective than it, when it comes from black experience. So like, we've got to be using these things, but like, we've also got to be talking about their context. Um, and, and both of you are talking about that, but I wanted to give that other example of something I've been wrong about, right? Yes. Like, what? <laughs> this is not the same thing. I've been in plenty of white parishes who've used it, and it feels problematic in some cases. And it also feels problematic to me to be in a white parish where we never sing any music from the Black tradition. So I don't know. There's no perfect answer, but I agree with you. At the very least, we need to understand the context, and we need to understand that when we sing it, we sing in the footsteps of those who have gone before us to teach us a path towards love and justice. But even there, so Jane, when you and I, oh, I don't know how many years ago now, we went to Baltimore for that music that makes community training. And I remember in one of the workshops, an older black woman saying, um, the Black Lives Matter movement doesn't have any songs. And that's really strange to me. And I think it's, it's a problem. And then I was thinking about it. And I, when I was like, realizing that there were all these recording artists who had created songs. It's just like the nature of song has changed with younger people. It's something you do on a computer, you know, and, and there are songs. They're just not as easy to sing as a group. But then I was noticing this weekend too, that um, people are honking their horns rhythmically. They're honking um, black lives matter, black lives matter. And I thought, well, that's the song. I mean, that, that right there is the song. I, um, we just have to kind of accept that music, protest music, liturgical music is a living entity and it's going to change a lot depending on the need and the moment. And sometimes if songs can't be sung, they can be played on car horns and drums and through the marching of feet. Um, it's still music. It's still music. And I think when I remember that conversation and others like it, especially among the Music That Makes Community crew, um, I think it was about the fact that the civil rights music was gospel music, right? Yeah. Like it was church music. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that's being named is in a kind of post-Christian era where the church is not the dominant force, is there protest music that's not written out of predominantly Christian sources? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that that music doesn't necessarily have to be totally void of spirit or God language, but it has to definitely be more inclusive, more conscious of um, gendered language and lots of things like that, that the, a lot of the gospel music, you know, traditionally hasn't been. And so for a new generation, a new set of music maybe is in need of being written or is, as you say, like almost like babies dance and sing before they talk, like there's it's already happening we just need to name it and help you know 
like I'm not the person to do this, but there are people who are like Monica, our friend Monica, who are helping bring it into the world in really Um, powerful ways. Yeah. While we're talking about things that are not explicitly Christian, would you like to talk about the article? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, We, this week we read um, Bell Hooks and we read her article um, love is the practice of freedom. Uh, she is a black feminist and a Buddhist Christian, and she writes about the necessity of an active decision to love in order to transform the world. Um, I'm going to interrupt myself to say that neither she nor I mean love in a way that rejects anger or that wallpapers over things for the sake of politeness. Um, it is a political rather than a religious essay, but she points often in her essay to um, to our longing spirits and to their poverty as, as something that gets in the way of renewal and transformation. And she th- sees two things as linked and imperative, and they are love and they are the flattening of status structures. Um, and so again, while it's not an explicitly religious essay, those sound to me to be a broad description of the mission that Jesus described to us. Um, And the other thing I want to say about the article is, again, in the spirit of things I've been wrong about, um, I grew up, I think, as a lot of white people did, thinking that um, books and movies and music created by white people were for everyone, and um, cultural objects by Black people were only intended for a Black audience. And while Bell Hooks is addressing a Black audience, and so she says some things that we should hear without making them about white people, um, I am really grateful to have had my life enriched since then by Black artists and authors. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to dive in. Um, She she doesn't mess around. Bell Hooks just does not mess around. And she says... (laughs) Um, (laughs) she says pretty early on that without an ethic of love shaping our direction, that we're seduced in one way or the other into continued allegiance to systems of domination, imperialism, sexism, racism, classism. And she says that a culture of domination is anti-love. Um, so that's exactly what we're talking about when I say that her love is not uh, a Hallmark card. Um, and I wonder, um, I wonder what you all thought about that. I mean, I think this is just such an incredibly powerful idea because I think one of the things that again and again we see, and and I know I thought of even when I was first starting to imagine new ways of being church, I think in my head I thought we had to tear down everything else in the process and and then recreate it. And there are still days where I want to be a complete anarchist. Like, I just want to like blow it all up, burn it all down and say like, this cannot be redeemed. Like this thing that we're working with, there's, there's no way to change it. Um, but the systems of power are so fundamentally broken. And I don't know. But then like one of the things that was like profound for me was realizing that what people do, like when one section of a government overthrows another section of a government is that they just then have power over you know then they just oppress the people that they have you know overthrown 
And so there's almost this like human nature thing where we keep having to oppress another person in order to prove that we're right and they're wrong or that we're more powerful than they are. And so, I mean, I think this is a huge challenge that I don't know how to get around that. Like, how do we not do this? Like, how is it like so embedded in our humanity that there's some way that we keep having to push over others? And even when I think I'm actively working on this as a Christian who wants to be anti-racist and wants to be anti-oppression, like, I know that there are things I do and say that continue to allow me to hold power. Um, it feels it feels incredibly complicated and yet incredibly true at the same time. I guess that's what I would like. That's how I respond to bell hooks. Like yes, and I don't know how to do that. Like in like I know I can strive for it, but I don't know how to accomplish it. And maybe that's just a like a whiteness problem too. Is that I think I have to like fix it or get it right. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's not, I don't know. It is the whole stated conundrum though. I think you're right that instead of flattening it, it feels like um, we're always at risk of exchanging who is dominant instead of sharing. And I think we're seeing that even in our political dialogue right now, right? Like, are the protesters right or are the police right? And like, is it right to be violent against another person in order to prove your point? right? So it's not one or the other, but like in this whole like thing about rioting, right? Like that's like one of the ways that I think it's being manifest in our culture right now. Like is the, we can all like speak to like why the rioting speaks to rage and like communal grief and like the need to like change the dialogue. But that's, that's in our public life right now is who's right? Who deserves to be able to like get their point across? And I don't know, I don't know if I'm saying it the right way, but it feels to me like we're living through this time where the question is, if there's going to be violence, how do we respond to it? And what's the like loving way to respond to violence on any side? How much of violence do you think is unarticulated grief? Because I'm just looking, you know, Bell Hook says, um, she talks about grief. She says, uh, if Black folks are to move forward in our struggle for liberation, we must confront the legacy of this unreconciled grief for it is a breeding ground for profound nihilistic despair. Um, and I, I, I think violence is a cri de corps of hopelessness. You know, it is, um, it is grief that has found that nowhere to go and no one to give it comfort. Um, so I, I don't know, like I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely a, a Martin Luther King nonviolent type of person, but I understand the violence and I don't condemn it. I don't want to participate in it, but I don't condemn it. Maybe I should, I don't know, but it feels like um, if what I, what I really should be condemning is those forces that try and keep grief silent. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this is something that I was thinking of when we were earlier and you were talking about our liturgy. And I mean, I, I, I know, I mean, something that I learned for, you know, many African-American churches is that uh, 
grief is kind of this the source of much of kind of the emotion that is displayed and comes out and i mean so i don't know i mean channeling grief is something that we that we all have to do and I, and some of us who have more grief than others i mean there's just a, something that needs to come out and i don't know i mean so there that, that's a really fascinating and that's something that i'm learning more about this week um is how important or how significant grief is and how it's being displayed and how it's being um, channeled. And we see it. I mean, it's just, it's, I, I, keep, I keep hearing that it's just kind of, it's bubbled over and it just can't be contained anymore. And I think some of that grief has to do with COVID, you know, I mean, it has Absolutely. to do with everything that has happened to our nation in the last, well, four years, but three months, you know? Right. right. Um, I heard this video from a, a black activist in Chicago and uh, yeah, one of the things he said that I found to be incredibly profound and on some level, I think he's thinking about it really intellectually and a lot of other people are on the like much more of like emotional, physical expression of something that like has been bound up uh, in our houses and in our, on the world being changed in ways that we can't explain or understand fully. Um, but what he speaks of is that this desire by our country to reopen all of a sudden without dealing with the fact that the reopening isn't actually good news for a lot of people mm. and that it's actually just trying to like reinstate a, a system that was fundamentally bad for everyone involved and it's only people in power that want it to go back the way it was. So that some of this like rage is about trying to like recreate a world that no, a lot of people don't actually want recreated. Um, and again, I don't know, I think that's his intellectual way of understanding something that's happening, but it does make me wonder how much of all of this is, is bound up in that too. Well, I was thinking about that when I was downtown yesterday, because everything is boarded up every business, every building, plywood, and then on the plywood is just graffiti everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but I was thinking like, if you, th if you think of a city as a canvas and a downtown as a canvas, the people who have been allowed to paint that downtown for, for years and years and years in Columbus are the wealthy. You know, they've, their graffiti is, you know, incredibly expensive restaurants and hotels that want to charge $400 a night. And, um, and uh, uh, um, forcing people out of their homes as new apartment buildings go up. That's a kind of graffiti too. That's writing on the cityscape in its own way. And I thought, well, why is this, why do we think that this graffiti we're seeing now is any worse, you know, or why would we condemn this and not the other? It's all just painting on walls. <laughs> or just Carl. I really, I really appreciate that metaphor. That's really beautiful. So I noticed that we're getting towards the end of our time together. Um, and I don't want to leave us like this. And I have one last question that's important to me. Um, Bell Hooks, towards the end of her essay, talks about how, she says, working within community, whether it be sharing a project with another person or with a larger group, we're able to experience joy in struggle. And that joy needs to be documented. Or if we only focus on the pain, the difficulties, which are surely real in any process of transformation, 
We only show a partial picture. And both COVID um, and this rolling boil of racial injustice right now are struggles. But I want to know in this last podcast that we have together, in the midst of, in spite of, and because of these specific times, have you seen joy over the last few months that you'd like to document? Hmm. Well, I, I can say what's been hardest to me about COVID, and I've only been realizing this the last few weeks, is that I have no longer been in the company of children. Um, and so we finally started our children's church services up again, um, led by Darian McCoy, who's our new children formation director and who is wonderful. And just, I mean, it was only like two or three kids and it was only on Zoom, but it gave me such joy. And I almost didn't know what to do with it. And then yesterday, downtown, um, Ella and I walked past these four little black kids talking to a National Guardsman who's just sitting there chatting with them. <laughs> and I was just like, there is hope, there is joy, right? Like the, that um, chaos is all around us and yet these children are bringing this connection and um, just this kind of sense of curiosity and wonder. It was, it was beautiful. I'm getting a little teary-eyed. Well, Carl, that remind your story reminds me a little. We did a children's Zoom on Saturday, um, talking about the story of Pentecost, and I had the children doing a little scavenger hunt in their house around symbols of the Holy Spirit, finding things that were red or um, a symbol of a bird or things like that, fire, well, those kinds of things, and. Um, it was just so sweet to see them. We blew out candles and sang happy birthday to the church. And there was something we had to do it twice because it was just so fun. And so there was something about being with children. I think that's really powerful. We've slowly letting, started letting our children play with one family and then another family on our street and um, seeing our kids come together with other kids. There's been this like expression of pure joy there was this one day where they had been sort of still social distancing, like figuring out ways to play without being with each other. And all of a sudden it started pouring down rain one day last week, like just like buckets. And the boys were outside and they just kept playing in the rain. And there was this just like pure visceral, like summer energy of like running through the rain, like yelling and like playing ball together that just like, at one point I was like, I should tell them to separate. I should tell them to come inside. And I just couldn't, I like, couldn't shut down that joy. Um, and then the other thing that I've been thinking about is I've been taking this meditation class and out of like, I'm sure our instructor did not plan it, but this week's instruction was to pray the loving kindness meditation. Mm -hmm. And uh, his translation of it is, may you know happiness, may you be free from suffering's authority. I've often heard it just may you be free from suffering, but I think that idea of suffering's authority is a really powerful um, phrase. And may you experience joy and ease. Mm -hmm. And as I've tried to pray that each day this week or meditate on that um, and send it out into the world in some way, it's been really like both hard, but also has given me joy in realizing like 
what does it mean to free people that I'm angry with, including our political leaders, um, from suffering's authority, which I think goes back to this like unrecognized grief that is so prevalent in the ways in which racism have wounded us and have authority over our actions um, as white people. And then how might they experience joy? How might I experience joy in the midst of this? So I've definitely been asking that. Um, so those are some of my answers. But what about you, Jason? Yeah, you know, I, I and I want to say this, um, mindful of some things I heard today. Just, I mean, I was listening to 1A on NPR and of course we're talking about what's going on in the world and these African-American it's like two different ones called in and we're just like, yeah, we, we see what's going on. We don't think anything's going to change. Hmm. It's just going to stay the same. I mean, all this is going to die down. And so, and the reason why I say that is because I've had this joy and there's part of me, there's a little, I, I don't know why I do. I'm conflicted about this, but I feel a little shame about it. But also excitement is the idea that, well, maybe some things can change and maybe this is the opportunity that we have mm-hmm. for something to change. And, um, and so, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the joy that I'm feeling. And, and But I'm trying to be sober about it because I know that some things may not. And so, but I still think there's an opportunity for some change, for some good change to happen. And maybe change is just on this broad spectrum. Like we want it to be this one moment of massive overthrow. But I saw someone post on Facebook this week, you know, I've seen more white, friends and allies speaking out on injustice than ever before. I mean, maybe part of the change is just like a kind of like ripping off of the bandaid for a lot of people who wouldn't have engaged in this work before, um, the the work of anti-racism. So I don't know, maybe that's a piece of, I'm holding out hope for that, if not massive change of empire, but, um, at least maybe some sort of recognition. Yeah, I'm just hoping for a change in our president. And <laughs> maybe mean, more people. I shouldn't say that, people. but that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you all. Thank you, Dad. But what about you? Did you say what you were? No, you I didn't. didn't. I didn't. I feel I love um, not just in this time, but always one of the most like effervescent bubbling joys to me is watching people roll up their sleeves. Um, So um, both handsome men with nice forearms, but also people doing the work. (laughs) So much as Jane was talking about how, um, about how, minds and hearts have been changed. I am excited to see that. And I am really excited to see also in my friends, um, people really diving in and showing up and making calls and doing risky, hard things. Um, I'm so excited by that. Um, so that is one source of my joy. Um, and also, Every morning I've been taking my son out. There's this big back field behind our apartment. Um, and he has been chasing bubbles every morning in the sunshine. And it's how we are starting our day. And it is, um, it is sacred and I'm so grateful for it. Beautiful.
Thank you for joining us for this and for the seven previous episodes of Liturgy and Lawning. We were so glad to get to spend this time with all of you and with each other during this COVID-19 pandemic and everything that has come afterwards. And uh, I will miss your guys' voices every week. Um, Unfortunately, I get to talk to you all a lot, so that's good. But you listeners, you'll miss us deeply, I'm sure. (laughs) Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly, and you can find more of her music at Bandcamp. Uh, It was just the four of us today. We did not have a guest. And we will not be back next week because this is it for our series. Thank you all so much for being with us. And God bless you. This tree.